We come this morning to our sermon passage, and we'll be in Galatians chapter 6. We were in the book of Galatians last week as well, um, but we'll be here in Galatians 6, which is really near the end of the letter uh, to the Galatians. Um, and I've said something like this the last few weeks, to, to, to place our faith in Jesus is to enter into a different story. We all live our lives in this world with a story, whether we realize it or not, about who we are, about who other people are, about who God is. And we live out that story in the way that we make decisions. We live out a story in the way that we think about ourselves and other people. Well, when we come to faith in Jesus, it's an invitation to enter into a different story, the true story of the gospel. That in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has done something definitive that has brought forgiveness, transformation, and hope into our world. And as I've said the last few weeks, this good news that is announced to us by Jesus is completely different from the good advice we get everywhere else. Every religious leader in the world, every uh, self-help guru, everybody is an advisor. And they've got lots of good suggestions. Here's a list of things to do if you want to be whole. Here's a list of things to do for you to be a good person. But what Jesus announces to us is good news of a victory accomplished. Not something we can do, but something that he's done. And what he's done changes everything for us. It's a seismic, cataclysmic shift. It's a new story for us to enter into. Here's what I mean. We talked about it the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, we looked at the, the gospel promise of a new record before God. When we enter into this new story by faith in Christ, we become people who do not need to prove ourselves to God or to anybody else. Because when we come to him by faith, we are given the righteousness of Jesus as a gift. By faith, not by works. It means that when God looks at us, he sees us. In Christ. And so that perfect life that Christ lived is ours. Is ours. We are righteous. We are justified by faith. And that's profoundly different than the other stories of this world where I need to get this amount of money tucked away for retirement and then I'm a whole person or I'm a successful person. Or I need to climb this far on the ladder of success. I need to have this GPA or this many trophies on the wall. It's completely different. Or the gospel promise of a new heart. That God's changing every part of us. And he's making his love for us our motivation and our way to thrive. And so we don't try to put different gas in our gas tanks. We don't try to motivate ourselves by shame that we're not far enough down the road yet. Or guilt that we really messed up in our life. Or whatever it might be. No, we find our motivation and our way to thrive in the fact that we are loved. That's to enter into a different story. But let me say this. Do you know that that all sounds a little bit far-fetched? Especially if you don't have a background in, in hearing this kind of thing. If you haven't grown up around church or you've never read the Bible, that sounds really far-fetched. Like how, how is that not just us kind of lying to ourselves to make ourselves feel better? That we're righteous, that have a new heart. And I think one of the ways that this can become plausible in our world. It can be tangible and embodied. One of the ways that this can be shown to not just be a pipe dream is through the promise 
of a new community. The people that that story shapes. Because I read a theologian this past week and he said the measure of a story is the kind of people it creates. And that's what we're talking about this morning. The promise from Jesus of a new community. A new community in the church. So we're going to be reading Galatians 6, 1 through 10 and talking about that very thing. It's printed for you in your bulletin if you need it. Galatians 6, this is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that in it we catch a glimpse of who you are. You reveal yourself through your word. And thus, a picture of who we are in you. So as we attend to the riches and the treasures of the gospel this morning, move upon our hearts. Move by your Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, to see this power from God that is ours in the gospel, to see the glory and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our hearts might be ravished, that we might love him all the more. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you read through the book of Galatians, which is only six chapters, I'm not saying you're going to understand everything at, at, at one quick pass because, you know, it's a letter that was written 2,000 years ago in a different context and it takes some work for us to understand it. But if you read through the book of Galatians, Paul has talked a lot about what I just talked about, justification by faith, how people can be righteous by faith and not by works. And he's talked about us becoming adopted sons and daughters of God by faith. And he's talked about how um, living a life centered on the gospel, or as, as he puts it, being led by the Spirit, or walking in the Spirit, produces fruit. That from this root of God's love for us, we bear fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And here in chapter 6, he's kind of winding up the argument, that he's, the, the, the thing he's talked about in the book. And he's rounding the corner. This is him landing the plane, in a sense. He's making his final points. And what he does is he talks about what all of that leads to. If justification in my faith is true, and there are people that can be righteous in God's sight by faith in Jesus, if that's true... And if living a life founded on God's love for us bears this fruit, if that's true, then what does that mean? Where does that show up? How do we see it? And that's what he turns to here. What it looks like for people to inhabit this gospel story together in a new community. As they are brought together. 
And this is something completely foreign in a world like ours. Because what happens is people are turned toward each other, but not in suspicion, not in competition. They're turned toward each other, not to dominate, but they're mobilized for each other's good. It's a completely different outlook and approach to life. To see other people not as somebody to step over or to climb past, but to see and value and love somebody else and be mobilized in our hearts and in our resources for their good. And so what he does here, I think, in verse 1, is he throws out a test case. Here's a test case scenario. How do people who have this new record and this new heart How do they respond when someone sins and sins big? This is the test case for the new community. So verse 1, if someone is caught in sin, in the Greek, the literal translation, if someone is overtaken by a sin, the picture here is not somebody who felt guilty and confessed it. It is somebody who has been caught, who has been exposed. If someone is caught in a sin, now we love a scandal, let's admit it. Our world loves a scandal. We love the gossip and drama. We love the tea. We want to we know all the details, right? Somebody fails. and We, we don't want to admit that about ourselves, but, you know, it's the reason why all the celebrity gossip papers sell so well. It's because you look at it and you're like, what's happened with J-Lo and Ben Affleck this week? And you flip them through. You don't want to talk about it, but you love it. It's okay. I think we all do where it's not okay, but I think we all do it. It's why reality shows are such a big deal. We love the drama, but in this new community, in this new community of the church, when somebody is caught and exposed, when they are exposed and shamed, and they have found themselves ruined, what do we do? You should restore that person gently. This is the test case. When someone fails and fails big and they've been exposed, how do we respond? We restore that person gently. When one of us fails, it is a unique occasion for us as a community to prove the gospel is true. To prove the gospel is true by responding in compassion and grace. Because anywhere in the world... Someone can fail, and they'll be uh, met with shame. They'll be met with guilt. They'll be mocked and laughed at and disdained. That can happen anywhere. Jesus didn't need to die for that to happen. But in this new community of the church that's been created, how do we respond when someone fails big? It is a unique opportunity to prove that the gospel, the supernatural gospel, is true by responding in compassion and grace. Now... Let me say this as a caveat. It doesn't mean that the new community, the church, becomes a haven for people to run from consequences. Um, There's some people that will run to a verse like this, and they maybe have a history of abuse, child abuse or domestic abuse, whatever type, and they'll say, well, no, I I need to be restored gently. I don't need to face consequences. I feel bad about what I did. No, what it means to restore somebody gently if they've abused somebody is that we report it to the authorities. We insist on justice because part of uh, restoring someone who abuses other people is addressing uh, the abuse so it doesn't happen again. 
We, we surround the person that has been victimized and been caught up in the sin of others, and we work toward their healing. And we also tell the abusers that they can find grace, that they can inhabit a different story, that a new life and a new way is possible. Or take, for instance, if somebody's found out that they've, uh, they've been caught embezzling money or stealing, we don't restore them by making them the church treasurer. Like, <laughs> that's okay. It's okay. That's not, re- that, that's not how you restore somebody. We don't make them the church treasurer. We don't, but we don't hang their failure over their head in judgment. We become people that are in their corner. We're on their team. Not enabling them to continue in sin or to run away from what is right, but we become people that are committed to their good. Now, this is not us standing from our high horse or on our platform looking down at the plebeian people below us who have messed up and said, Well, here, I'll dispense some crumbs of kindness to you. Here's some grace. No, that's not what the new community of the church is. And that's what Paul talks about next. Restoring others and mobilizing to help people in distress, there's a danger in this for those who help. It's that they will think of themselves as higher than those who have fallen into failure, who have been caught up in sin, or whatever it may be. That's what he's addressing in verses 3 through 5. Carrying each other's burdens is not a place of performance. It does not make us uh, better than anybody. I think we have this idea of charity in our minds, that charity is us throwing money at a problem or, or giving some used clothes away. And that's fine. Give money to good causes. Give clothes to good causes. Like, that's fantastic. But that idea of charity, that we just pop in and we give something, we throw something at an issue, and we don't actually throw our lives into this other person's life, that we don't become invested in their good, that's, we've got to get that out of our, our idea of what the church is. Because people are not a problem to be solved. Jesus does not join us to other people in the church for us to look down upon them or demean them or treat them like they're a problem to be solved. People have burdens, yes. And we can help carry those burdens. But to live out of the gospel is to see and value and love the person even in their failure. One of my favorite quotes from the... uh, 16th century pastor, uh, John Calvin. This is a little bit of a long one, but I'm going to read the whole thing because I really do love this quote. He's hitting at this exact point. He says this, Something more is required from Christians than wearing a cheerful face and rendering their duties attractive by friendly words. First, they should imagine themselves in the situation of the person who needs help. And they should pity his bad fortune as if they themselves both bore it and felt it. Thus they will be compelled by a feeling of mercy and humanity to give him help as if it were given to themselves. One who has this mindset and approaches the task of helping his brothers will not contaminate his duties to others with arrogance or resentment. He won't despise a brother whom he helps because his brother needs such help, nor will he subject his brother to himself as a debtor. We would, of course, never mock an injured limb, which the rest of the body labors to revive, nor would we consider that limb particularly indebted to the body's other members because it has received more help than it has given. 
The help that different members of the body mutually offer one another should not, according to the law of nature, be considered a favor. So he's saying, like, we don't think of our bodies that way when we have a broken leg and on the left and we've got to put more weight on the right. The right leg's not like, you're indebted to me, left leg. Like, you don't have to equal that out later on. That should not be considered a favor, but rather as an obligation that would be unnatural to refuse. For this same reason, one who has performed a single obligation should not consider himself free from doing more. As generally happens when a wealthy person, after offering something of his own, leaves it to others to see to remaining needs. As if such remaining needs have nothing to do with him. Rather, everyone should consider himself, no matter how great he may be, a debtor to his neighbors. And he must set no limit on the exercise of kindness toward others, short of the failure of his own resources. For such kindness, as far and as wide as they extend, should conform to the rule of love. This is that radical new community where help is offered, where grace is our quick and first reaction, and where we're not like keeping tabs. This is the radically countercultural vision of a new community, not a place where the rich can come in and make tax deductible gifts, but a new community where people come together and value one another. Uh, regardless of wealth, status, career, history, is a place where all are seen and valued and loved. He turns to this danger of us seeing, our, seeing others as lesser than us when we help them. He warns of this temptation. And essentially what he tells us is that we should only look toward other people's burdens if we are looking to help. When he talks about everyone should, uh, how does he put it exactly? He says, each one should test their own actions. They can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each should carry his own load. Essentially what Paul is saying is if you're going to turn your eye toward the burdens of other people, you better be turning your eye toward their burdens to help. Otherwise, mind your own business. Is what he's saying. Our motivation is to be turned toward each other for each other's good. And when we see a burden, we help carry it. When our brother or sister is staying up late at night, worried in their heart, we stay up with them. When they are suffering, we suffer alongside. When they celebrate, we celebrate with them. We only turn our eye toward other people's burdens and concern ourselves with them and have those words about them come out of our mouth if it is to help. Otherwise, we mind our own business. That's essentially what he's saying. Then in verse 6, Paul adds an aside that kind of feels out of nowhere. He starts talking about pastors and church staff being paid. But the way he talks about it is a countercultural thing as well. Notice he doesn't talk about it in the relationship of a pastor and a church as a uh, uh, an employee being paid by an employer. That's not what he's talking about here. He describes it in terms of a, uh, uh, an instructor who is sharing not just ideas with people, but his very life. People who attend specifically to the pronouncing the gospel of Jesus are not employees. I am not this church's employee. I am on paper 
when the tax stuff comes due, that's my category. I'm an employee of the church. But that's not the relationship that we are designed to have here, where I'm an employee or, on the flip side, that I'm a lord in a hierarchy above you all. Not at all. I have a very specific calling and a specific set of gifts. I just accidentally quoted uh, Liam Neeson from Taken. Um, I've been very... <laughs> it just hit me. Um, but I have a spe specific skill set and a specific calling. And it's not a bad thing for me to be paid, but it is not employer-employee. That is not what this is. It is us... As Paul says, sharing our good with one another. And that's part of it. It's our sh we share our lives with one another. And so when you guys give to this church, it is not you paying me a salary. It is you guys recognizing that my calling is to be set apart to study and teach God's word and to pray and to be about your lives and to love you guys. And that I can be paid out of that. Not extravagantly. One of the things that grieves my heart to no end is when I see pastors that live far beyond the means of the people in their congregations. That's every TV preacher that you've ever seen. They've got folks sending in checks of $10 a month that can't afford it so that they can drive whatever kind of car and have this kind of jet and have their television program. And it's wretched in God's sight. I think. It is not a calling to pull the money together to have the pastor have this extravagant life that other people don't have. The church is not a platform for teachers to amass fortunes, but it's a community where we live together with one another. In all of this new community, I've walked through a bunch of stuff. This is what makes the gospel plausible. It's what makes the gospel tangible and real in our world. A place of gentleness. A place of restoration, a place of mutual encouragement where our burdens are carried together, where humility is the rule of the day. No hierarchies, no varsity and JV, where we carry our hope together. When in seasons where my faith runs low, I lean on yours and vice versa. We don't have to hide in church. We don't have to pretend. This is not a place for religious cosplay it's not a place where we pat ourselves on the backs for how devout we are, how much we've given, or what we've done. As I've said before, I'm quoting somebody, but I can't remember who. The church is not a museum for the saints to hang their works of art on the wall to be admired. The church is a hospital. The church is a hospital where we come in here and find the healing that we all so desperately need. And just like in a hospital, you don't have one ward picking on another one. You know, you don't have the burn unit picking on the cancer unit. That's not <laughs> how it works. We are receiving the grace we need. We are healing together. We don't have to pretend here. This is a community we live in where we're all washed by the gospel, where we are home. So are you per imperfect? Are you flawed? Welcome to the club. So am I. And so is everybody else in this room. Let's be flawed and imperfect together. Let's watch the grace of Jesus baffle us and allow that grace to turn us toward one another. So that's the new community of the church, but that's just one aspect of it because I've talked about how the community relates to itself, 
how we relate to one another within this church. But there's another aspect. This is why I call this new community good news for our city. It's because this new community isn't just turned toward each other. It's turned outward. It's turned outward to where God has placed us. That's this next section, good news for our city. If Christ, if Christ Church Dunn disappeared tomorrow, would anybody in Dunn notice? If we stopped meeting together, not just for a week, but if we disappeared tomorrow, would anybody in Dunn notice? If you moved from your neighborhood, would your neighbors have a second thought about it? I don't want you to feel guilt with that. It's not my goal. But it's a question worth asking. It's a goal for us as a church community, not just to be a group of people that get together on Sunday, but to be mobilized as a group and as individuals to dive all the way in for our neighborhoods and all the way in for our city. So that if we move from our neighborhoods, there would be a hole there that people would notice. That if our church disappeared, it would be a measurable loss to this city. Of course, that doesn't mean that our city or our neighborhood is always going to agree with everything we're about or that our goal is to be celebrated and applauded by people from the outside. But it does mean that we, on purpose, go out of our way from a place of worthiness in the gospel to sow into our community like farmers. We sow into our community like farmers. That's exactly the imagery that the Apostle Paul uses here in these final verses. Verse 7, he speaks about how we will reap what we sow. That those who sow to plead the, uh, please the flesh will reap destruction. So in Scripture, the flesh doesn't mean the body. He's not saying the body's bad and, and the, the mind is good. or The body's bad and the spirit's good. Body's good, but when it says the flesh, it means how our human nature has been marred by sin. The flesh in Scripture is, is, is that term. It's speaking about how rebellion against God has negatively impacted our world and lives. And as a new community being formed by the gospel, we must be aware that if we live our lives with each other and within the community around the flesh, he's talked about it earlier in the book, malice, hatred, dissent, being turned each other, toward each other in competition or breaking each other down in anger, if we are about that, then we will only reap destruction. In other words, if we want to see, truly see transformation in our neighborhoods and in our city, if we truly want to see people come to know the grace of Jesus, we cannot simply live our lives without considering what we are sowing into the world around us. We cannot treat those outside the church with disdain and suspicion and expect to see people come to faith. We can't. We can't sneer at people or look at them sideways and think that they will be one to Jesus with our words and actions. We can't close ourselves off to our neighborhoods or our community and expect to reap a harvest of righteousness. No, we must sow, as Paul says, sow to please the Spirit, which when he says that, he means this. We must live with the gospel of Jesus at the center. We must inhabit this story day in, day out, treating ourselves and others as if the gospel is true because it is. And because the gospel is true, it must change how we interact with ourselves, with one another, and with those outside the church. To sow to please the Spirit is to live from the gospel. Not moving on from the radical good news that we are righteous only because we have been gifted the righteousness of Jesus. That any thought of us earning anything before God is out of the window. 
And because God has not asked us to perform for Him, we don't ask other people to perform for us either. We extend a welcome. We open a door to bring them in. We bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, pursuing this, living out the reality of the gospel in a world such, of our, such as ours is hard. It's tiring. That's why Paul talks about becoming weary and doing good. Because it doesn't automatically mean things go well. There are going to be times when you love your neighbor, when you love your family member, when you love your friend or your enemy, and it blows up in your face. There are going to be times when we carry each other's burdens and to everybody else we look stupid. There are going to be times when we decide to give toward a cause, and that means at the end of the day our net worth has gone down. We aren't saving as much, or we aren't able to spend on this thing that we would kind of want to. It's going to mean sacrifice, and it's going to be tiring sometimes. And I actually think that that is why sometimes it's easy for churches to become social clubs or political groups. Not because they uh, have bad motives, but because trying to live out the gospel can wear you out. And you want to take a shortcut. Or to opt out entirely. But the promise here in Scripture is that if we sow love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, if we major there, if we inhabit this story and live it out day in, day out, we will reap a harvest. He says it right here. We will see the impact of a gospel-centered community. We will see people come to faith and find Jesus beautiful and worthy. We will see our kids grow up in church and find the love of Jesus and not turn 18 and think my parents were crazy I need to go off and whatever or have a bunch of traumatic church experiences that they can talk about. But if we truly dive in on this gospel-centered community, it will become a place, a garden of growth. And so Paul can say, say what he ver says in verse 10, and this is kind of his wrap-up thought in this section. Therefore, because of all of this that I have just said, at every opportunity to do good, at every opportunity do good to all people, and he adds especially the household of faith, which isn't a, a, you know, <laughs> a free pass for us to really like each other and not people outside the church. We're just in proximity to each other. More often. But at every opportunity, we'll have more opportunities to do good for each other, is what it's saying, essentially. But at every opportunity we get, do good because the gospel's true. One of my very favorite poems, probably my favorite poem, is by my favorite author, a man named Wendell Berry. I love this man and his writings. And I won't read the whole thing, it's a long poem. But there's a couple of lines that has stuck in my head, and I think about these all the time. He says this, Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant and that you will not live to harvest. Plant sequoias. What he's saying is this, If I went out today and I planted a sequoia, a redwood tree, the full growth, the full maturity of that tree would not be seen for at least 500 years. I would plant the thing 
and it would far out extend beyond my lifetime. I would never see the fullness of this tree. I could plant it today, and the full growth wouldn't be seen until uh, 25-23 at the earliest. That's what I want to see happen in this church. This church is a couple years old. It's a church plant. It's a new thing. But that's what I long to see, not just to create something where we'll have some good relationships for a few years, where we'll grow in number enough to get money for a building, and then we'll build that building, and then we'll watch ourselves dwindle down until it's an empty building. Sadly, that's the story of lots and lots of churches. Gather a lot of people, raise a bunch of money, build a building. The numbers dwindle until it's an empty building. That is not, that is not why I want to give my life to this cause. What I long to see happen is to be a part of uh, planting a sequoia. To be a part of beginning something that not even two generations from now will know the fullness of it. May God make it so. And here's the thing. I don't just hope for it. I have a great hope that this new community can happen here in Christchurch. That it can happen and done. And the reason why is because I have lived it. I have experienced the new community of the church. I've experienced it here. I've experienced it at other churches that I've been a part of. Where the gospel is not just a story, where it's not just verbal, that it's visible, it's tangible. And part of the reason that I know the gospel is true is because I've experienced things like this. People who aren't blood family giving me a place to live when I had nowhere to go. I've experienced that. And it proved to me that the gospel is true. Because why else would they do that? I've experienced people who aren't family paying medical bills for me. I've had that experience before. I've experienced people who aren't family giving to this work. There are so many people that have given to make Christchurch Dunn happen who have no connection to Dunn, who've never, who can't pinpoint Dunn on a map, who don't know where it is, have never been here and probably uh, never will unless they're coming to visit. Um, because I told them that Jesus is wonderful and done's worth it. I lived out, I've lived out this new community. I know it's true. I've told this story before. I went through a season of extreme doubt, actually after seminary. So I'd already learned all the stuff I was supposed to learn. I'd graduated. I'm going through this season of doubt. And I'm in the middle of an Easter service. I'm not preaching. I'm not playing music. I'm sitting there singing songs, and we're singing about the resurrected Jesus. And I know all the arguments for why it happened. It did happen. But in that moment, sitting in that room, I thought, do I believe all this? Do I really believe all this? That Jesus was crucified and came back to life? That he's reigning over his church, and that there's something called the Holy Spirit that inhabits all of us and binds us. Do I really believe all this? And in that moment, for the first time in my life, I thought, I don't know. Intellectually, at that moment, I, I, I didn't know. And then I looked around at the room I was in, and I saw the friends that I had relationships with. And they were singing with a passion that I had known before, that I had felt before. And I thought, okay... At this moment, right now, I cannot say that I have the strength of faith to believe this. But they do. 
And so right now, I'm going to lean on them. I'm going to lean on them, and I'm going to borrow their faith, for lack of a better term, and I'm going to be carried along in this season. And it was, it, honestly, it was an incredible season of growth for me because what I had been doing before then is depending on my intellectual prowess. I thought if I knew enough facts that it would be the bedrock. But when that swept out from under me, what carried me along was the tangible and visible reality of the gospel in my church. And so that's what I, I, I want to see come to life in this church. It is already coming to life in this church. It is. And we will continue to grow. It's a beautiful thing. So friends, let's together live in this new community as this new community. Let's give each other in our city, in our neighborhoods, the tangible reality of the gospel. God is planting a sequoia. Let's enter into the story of the gospel together. And let's join him in planting this thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your love for us. Thank you for the gospel promises, that we are righteous in your sight, that we have new hearts from you, motivated by love. And Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for the promise of a new community. That we are not alone in this world, that you give us the gift of the body of Christ that makes these promises and this love, these fruit of the Spirit, tangible and real to us. Continue to grow us in this. Mobilize us toward each other for each other's good. Mobilize us together for the good of our community. Prosper this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.